You are listening to www.infinitesmile.org. Enjoy these uninspired talks given by Michael McAllister, followed up by question and answer exchanges with groups of his students. Before we sat for our meditation tonight, I was talking about how our minds really only exist in two spaces, one being the future and then one being the past. We can have neural and brain activity going on whenever, but mind and brain we can separate in a very uh, simple way. Mind is another way of explaining or giving a name to our sense of being separate. That I am in here and everything else is out there. And Maizumi Roshi uh, used to say to his students that, excuse me, I'm screwing that up too. Yasutani Roshi used to say to his students that the fundamental delusion is the belief that I'm in here and everything else is out there. That if we can actually break through that delusion, we awaken to the truth beyond scripture, the truth beyond religion, the truth beyond faith, the truth beyond any person. It's the truth of the infinite. We are all inextricably part of the infinite. Realizing that, realizing that oneness that we always already are is the path to freedom. Oddly enough, the closer we get to this sensation in the body, and this freedom in the mind that shows up as this oneness, the closer we get to that oneness, the closer we have a felt sense of freedom in our day to day. So when we look at mind, we can see its activity in one of two directions. We can see it go into the past and we can see it go into the future and that's it. The same thing with the uh, with what we call ego. We can look at ego and mind as being the same thing in many respects. So ego can only deal with these stories of the mind that come from the past or the stories of the mind that go into the future, something that hasn't happened yet. That's the realm of ego. Okay? Judgment. That can use both. That can go into the past and into the future. Ego can judge things that uh, have already happened. It can judge things that haven't happened yet. And it's got all this activity, all this, all this gas. It can really act as the chairman of the board of our personal consciousness. So when we actually experiment and watch our thoughts and see them arise and recognize that they are all either a memory, a judgment, or a plan. Every thought we have is a memory, a judgment, or a plan. We start to label them. 
very quietly as we sit. We start to look at every thought that comes up and we can go, aha, judgment. Aha, judgment. Aha, another judgment. Boy, I'm judgmental today. A plan. Ooh, there's a plan, yeah. A memory. There's a memory. When we do that, and we keep that attention focused, what happens is the thoughts begin spontaneously to settle. And we can actually begin to witness space between those thoughts. That space between those thoughts is what we call in Zen, no mind. We're still awake. We're still here. We're in this room. We have our sense capabilities. We have our full awareness, but our mind has miraculously started to settle down. For some people, this is incredibly difficult. It was excruciatingly difficult for me when I started out. Um, and then it just kind of, with practice and patience, it just kind of started to settle down. Um, in that settling, in that no mind, there is no longer any attachment. And if there is no attachment, there is awakening. I've spent a little bit of time talking about how the uh, sum total of uh, Buddha's teachings can be really just articulated as let go. Just let go. Let go of everything, everything, everything. And then from that place of surrender, begin to act. Only act from that place of surrender. And if you can act from that place of surrender, you're actually acting from a place of wisdom, of knowing with a capital K. Acting from that place is compassion. So enlightened activity is compassion. That's the ability to see yourself and another person as one and acting from that realization, acting from that place of wisdom. And this is an incredibly difficult practice because we have spent an entire lifetime usually acting from another place, which is I'm in here and everything else is out there. And if I'm in here, everything else is really actually kind of a threat. And if I'm constantly being threatened, then what I need to do is defend. And if I need to defend, I also need to learn how to attack. So if I can defend and attack based on everything that I have learned in my past and every single thing that might happen in the future, man, I'm set. But what I've just articulated there is a very gradual but profound contraction into almost like this pugilist. We become this boxer in life as opposed to someone who is so open that they are beyond the strike of any punch, any sword, any bullet that comes their way. So our work really is to oddly enough, begin to let go 
especially of our identification with things, with belief patterns, with structures. It's very important. I think people can identify as their, uh, their role in society, their job, certainly, very common. They can identify as their role in a particular family. They can identify as the father, the brother, the sister, the mother, the sibling, whatever. They can identify with these roles, and these roles are actually really wonderful. There's nothing wrong with them. But when we adhere to a role with a lot of energy, that energy, that gripping, okay, is actually the birth of attachment. And the Buddha's teachings were about letting go, were about surrender. In that surrender, what happens is we awaken to the divinity of the all right here in this bag of bones that we call me. There's nothing really that we have to fear in that radical openness. There's nothing we have to defend. We are immersed in a non-defensive posture that can still say no. Our orientation has just shifted from something contracted into something deeply expansive. Our identification with a separate self has given way to something much more omnidimensional we call spirit. And if we can begin to identify with spirit, we are literally identifying with nothing. We are identifying with nothing. We are merely a vehicle that responds to every situation that arises with total openness and compassion, tenderness, kindness, grace, ease. We are beyond negativity. And when we feel it, that negativity, when we feel that separate self-sense as it arises, when we feel this stuff, this contraction, with practice what we learn to do is merely watch it as it happens. The next time somebody says something to you that makes you feel defensive, you've just been given a gift. You have just been given a gift. That gift is the experience of the separate self-sense. The minute somebody cuts you off on the freeway, the next time they do this, the minute somebody cuts in line in front of you, the minute somebody says something that really hurts, take a breath and witness that feeling as it arises. Any baggage that it brings with it any degree of force, of power, comes from our ego adhering to something from the past or some fear about the future. So, once again, we can, if we wish, carry this baggage around a great deal. That can be our cross if we want. It will eventually get so heavy that we have to let it go. And we'll, every one of us will do it at our last breath. Every one of us will do it when we die. But kind of the, uh, 
the trick is to figure out if we can let go of that stuff prior to death or if we can die to the present moment at every exhalation. We do anyway. Can we do it consciously? You cannot hang on to the now. You can't hang on to that present moment because it's gone. So we're confronted with this radical notion that everything is temporary. Everything, positively everything is temporary. And that our mind or our ego has a job. And that job is to establish some type of stability in the face of all this chaos. It's to create some type of, I have this. I can hang on to this. And it does all it can to build and articulate and affect affix handles to things so it can grip and grasp. And if it doesn't like that, what it does is it puts a handle on something over here so that it can pull away. But it's constantly moving. Ego is constantly pushing and pulling. It's constantly moving. So a stillness practice is the opposite of that activity. It's just a practice. Sometimes we're more successful at it than others. But the practice is not to move. It's to watch the tendency. It's to watch the separate sense, to watch the eye sense. Watch the eye sense and watch what it wants without grasping. Watch it. Watch it, watch it. As you start giving it this attention, you give it this attention and miraculously it begins to lose its grip. The attachment it has to itself begins to dissolve. And our psychological and spiritual orientation goes from the contraction and actually begins to enfold the contraction. Suddenly, ego and all of our clinging and so forth becomes just this activity that we can kind of watch. Isn't that cute? Just like a little, little kid doing something silly. We appreciate it for what it is, but we realize that it's not the whole story. It's not complete. And that our opening into no mind, our opening into the present moment that is neither the past nor the future, but is just right here, right now, our ability to orient our activity from that place allows all of our activity to be what's needed. I've said before that uh, Rumi has this great <laughs> Rumi has this great quote about uh, this whole thing that we're kind of talking about. He said, past and future veil God from our sight. Burn both of them with fire. Past and future veil God from our sight. Burn both of them 
with fire. And that fire is nothing other than your full awareness. That fire is the attentive nature that you have as you sit, that you carry with you into walking meditation, that you hopefully can develop a relationship with in your day-to-day, -day, no matter what you're doing, especially if some situation crosses you at that moment. Watch. Watch what's happening. And then if you tilt back into the contraction, okay, but then try to watch again. Try to watch again. This practice is actually what allows for each of us to become the change that we wish to see in the world. This is what allows us to be open to life rather than closed to it. This is what allows us to identify with something that is vast and infinite as opposed to something that is contracted and limited. And we learn never to confuse the limited view with what is absolute. We learn to actually become the absolute consciously as we eat our Cheerios. And so now what we do is for all the uh, all of our listeners, it's really wonderful when you have questions. So just pretend like this is going to amplify your voice, even though it won't. But if you have a question or a comment, and I would love it since we have kind of a small class, if we could just go from person to person to person. Do you mind going again first? Is that okay? I think where I tend to get stuck in meditation is with my attachment to the idea that people should treat me a certain way and then whatever feelings come up because people don't treat me the way I expect but then I ask myself what my goal would be like and what would happen if I lost this attachment would I just be in this state where people could treat me however they wanted and I wouldn't care and so that's a great question. I don't know what my question is. No, no, no. Well, well let me try to unpack it a little bit so I'm, I'm really clear what it is because if it's the direction I think it's going, I, I think it's, 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 it's an amazing question. Um, it sounds to me like you're, you're articulating a, a certain clinging that you have mm -hmm. about the way people are treating you, mm -hmm. okay? And by golly, they shouldn't be treating me this way. And then here I am sitting on this cute little cushion here, saying, let it go. Right. And then if you let it go, then you just don't defend yourself and, and you let them just keep hammering you or something like that? Right. Right, okay. This is one of the greatest tricks ego has in its quiver. It's just a perfect arrow in its quiver, okay? And that is it gives itself a central place in your experience by keeping you victimized. As long as it can keep you victimized and encourage situations that keep damaging you, 
it always has something to fix, doesn't it? Right? The most compassionate thing you can do is recognize that it is not okay for someone to treat you in an, uh, abusively. You enable their um, contracted sense to enact its resistance, and you then get to feel a whole bunch of resistance all the time. So actually, an appropriate response in that situation, the best way to let go is to let go of your old story and face it with your full awareness and then respond appropriately. The response that you might give them might be something like, that really hurt. Okay? Mm -hmm. What you're doing then is you're creating structure, okay, as a way of ultimately getting to the point where you can let it go. It's like, put in, in essence, it's a, it's a training wheel situation. And it's going to feel really strange. But this work is not about giving in, you know? Okay. It's not about being mush. It's about being absolutely still and letting that stillness inform your activity. And your activity might come out uh, as long as it's not something where you're harming yourself or another person that might come out in incredibly intense ways. But what have you done? You've let go at that point of everything you've thought. It's no longer how they always treat me. It's about this is how it should be. This is the compassionate move for me. And oddly enough, it's compassionate to them. Hmm. It keeps them from doing something awful hmm. or something that's just not sensitive. And this is how you become a bodhisattva. You awaken yourself and them all at once. Hmm. That makes sense. Yeah, just try it. Okay. So I don't know, and, but I, can I make a recommendation? Mm -hmm. Rehearse it. Okay. <laughs> you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Uh, wherever it is, if it's a you know an intimate relationship or it's a work relationship or whatever, or it's just the world, <laughs> rehearse it before you say anything. That way, the rehearsal you can actually let go of, let go of the rehearsal, and let spontaneity arise. And if it screws up first time, you get to do it again, and you get to do it again. I promise you will have infinite opportunities from this moment forward, Michelle, to do whatever you want in this capacity. Hmm. Okay? Okay. Yeah. Thank you. Sure. Michael, would you talk a little bit more about compassion? You you've given the example before when someone cuts you off on the freeway or something like that. I use that cuz I think that's the one that lights me up. I, I still get such great mileage out of that one. Yeah. W would you I giggle I can't what happened. Yeah, I'm sorry. I interrupted continue, you, Elaine. Please continue, though. That's oh, is, that, is, that a, is that a tough that's one for you? Yes, it's very, well, very tough. When someone... But that's a good example. The, the traffic is such a fine example. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I think it comes from... I mean, you feel... I feel separate, not only because I have a box of uh, metal around me, but also I'm traveling at a relatively high clip. 
you know, and I'm worried. I don't want to die. Right? The eye never wants to die. Okay? That in us, which is oriented around no mind, was never born. It can't die. It's like spirit does not die. Infinity does not die when we do, right? It has always been. It has always been and will always be. Nothing has ever happened there. Nothing has ever happened there in that stillness. Because it's still. It doesn't move, right? So when I am oriented in something that is full of motion, it's deeply egoic. In other words, I'm feeling totally separate. Uh, I I can recognize this. It doesn't. I'm f I feel pretty fortunate. It doesn't happen so much anymore. But it was a real great place of practice uh, because whenever somebody would cut me off, whammo, I could feel it immediately. And suddenly I had turned them into, you know, a bad person. Maybe they were just in a hurry. Maybe it was an emergency. I didn't know the story. Didn't matter. I didn't care. I I I I. They, 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 they. Instead of just maybe slowing down, getting out of their way, which is an obvious, compassionate move. You know? Even if they're giving me the bird as they drive by because I was going too slow for them or something, that's okay. It must be really hard to be in their skin at that moment. My heart goes out to them. Yeah? That, that's very helpful. Yeah, just... Good, I'm glad. <laughs> if you were in their skin, whatever it may be, that belongs to them, and that's that's their own, and that's where the compassion yeah. comes in. Yeah. Because for each of us who drives, that is a, a perfect opportunity to practice daily for the larger areas where compassion going to say might be more important but it's all the same i think it's i think you, you, what you said is beautiful yeah it, it's it's the great zendo of our age the automobile it is the great zendo of our age because it's it's almost like what it's like when we're meditating when you're driving your car you're responding to things as they arise right if the road turns you don't go straight unless you have some type of you know, death wish or something, you, you respond. You, you respond, you flow, okay? But you respond from a place that is grounded on those four tires. You're not just willy-nilly driving all over the place, you know, the, the, uh, somebody cuts you off, you just pull over and start, you know, breathing. Everybody hates me. No. You respond. You engage fully with kindness, wherever you go, all right? So essentially what we're doing is we're working on our driver in here on this seat. We're working on getting that driver able to recognize how to respond appropriately given any situation. Perhaps the other driver uh, can learn something from it, but that is that individual's own path doesn't belong to me. You're right. And the hardest thing ever for us to watch is somebody else going through their karma. 
two questions. Mm -hmm. uh, the first one is uh, about what you say about let go and surrender. Mm -hmm. uh, it's a no-brainer to know that anger is a very, very negative emotion. Uh, it's very difficult to combat that sometimes. So what is your technique of how to combat not to get angry and whatever, s oh, do you ever get angry? Oh, sure. Whatever situation comes, you say, oh, let me back off and let, let, let's, let's take a look at the big picture or, or as you say, let go and surrender and, and, and detach. Or right. What, what, what how, how do you handle that? Well, let me try to take it apart in a couple ways. I, I, use, I use the term, I don't like using the term detach because it, it implies... Yeah, exactly. Unattach. I don't know that that's a word, but detach always reminds me of somebody who's just like kind of off in the clouds. And if this practice is about being off in the clouds, just smoke a lot of pot or take drugs. You know, I mean, that's not what this practice is about. This practice is a way of walking in the world. And so if we can walk in the world in an unattached way as opposed to a, a detached way, I hope that makes sense then what we can do is we can walk in the world with um, feet that are not made of clay, but feet that are, are nothing other than light. Okay? The way we walk through the world as light, when anger arises, the technique, if you will, is to watch the anger arise. Then respond. That split second of study can offer just a timeless uh, uh, communion with people instead of contracted combat with them. It's watching the anger as it arises. And one of the great things that we can have that can always set this right in front of us is very close relationships with people. Um, I think uh, intimate relationships especially put us in touch with this. Um, uh, especially if they're uh, family. Family can get us in touch with that rage better than anything else. And I've always loved the, uh, uh, the quote. I've, I've talked about this before. I mean, if you, you want to see, see what, uh, what closes down the openness of an enlightened person, talk to their spouse. I believe that. It's just, it's really, really funny when you get to see it, when you get to experience it, whatever it is. I mean, the, the spouse or the intimate relationship that you might have with somebody, they just set you up to experience infinity rubbing up against the boundary of the self all the time. And that the self does not like having that happen. It, contra you know, it, 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 it uh, contracts with more energy. Study that contraction. Study that that is the method. Don't push it away. You give it energy. If you combat it, you're giving it energy. You're actually manifesting anger. You can call it something else, but it's still violence. Meet it with your entire heart and mind and then see where it takes you. So whenever you feel anger, you just use that split second to just you may try to see something or meditate. Try to feel it. Really feel it. Study that feeling. 
what brought it up? Because, I mean, the simple explanation is anger comes from fear. Fear comes from being separate, right? And so when we see someone is outside of us, they're, they, they're somehow not connected. We're always, always subject to that imbalance. The total wholeness, the total balance, if it's, if, if it's all one thing, it's only balance and grace and ease. And when we walk through the world with that as our orientation, anger becomes something that's quite fleeting. It doesn't stay because we're not attaching to it. We are unattached. <laughs>